Hey everybody, it's May of 2022, depending on when you're listening to this. Every May, they take time to acknowledge foster parents, family members, volunteers, mentors, policymakers, child welfare professionals, and other members of the community who help children and youth in foster care find permanent homes and connections. Now, that's what the Children's Bureau has to say on their website, and I think really what we can do is to just go out and help raise some awareness. That's part of our mission here at Foster Care Nation is we're raising the awareness of the need for people to help kids. There's almost a half a million children in the youth and foster care systems, and we want to celebrate those who make a meaningful difference in their lives. So to all the foster care parents out there, if you're a foster parent, yeah, yeah, we think you're awesome. Now, if you're not a foster parent, that's okay. Share some of these episodes with people because the initiatives that we work with and some of the the people who just have a story to tell, to let us know what this is really like, why some of the people we, we know have the struggles that they have. This is our job in life. It's just to help others, especially when it comes to children. We are passionate about helping kids understand how to work through these hard things. So share this with somebody, send them an episode. This month, we're going to have a couple amazing guests on here. We're going to start the month out with Rita Sornan. Rita is the uh, CEO and president of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Uh, we got a couple other great things coming up this month, so keep your eyes open. And again, share this with somebody. That'll be one of the biggest things that you can do to help raise awareness of the need that is just absolutely overwhelming the kids in our nation right now. You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I see now. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and no Amanda. Sorry guys, but she is out doing all those mom things where she takes care of kids who have to have appointments and whatnot and my silly self went and scheduled something in the middle of one of those appointments so i don't claim to be smart but we're getting kids taken care of today so today you just get me and our guest today is miss veronica bratcher she is a podcaster and author and a therapist and a foster mom who sounds entirely insane to me so it's great to have you here today veronica how are you doing i'm good how are you jason I'm doing wonderful, doing wonderful. Okay, so this whole like author, you said you have a book coming out in uh, in May, right? So depending on when you listen to this, that would be May of 2022. So that's right around the corner. And it was, the title is Missing Pieces Matter, right? Correct. Okay, I'm going to ask you about that, the title. I'm just curious. What is that about? I, as a therapist and a survivor of grief, I live in a world where there's a lot of grief that goes happen from 
foster kids that you don't get to stay with to in, in my experience, I had a daughter who passed away an adoptive daughter that passed away. And I work a lot with trauma and grief. And, and it talks about how as a culture, we have a tendency to compare our grief, who's is bigger, who's is worse. And in doing so, we create a lot of pain in each, in ourselves and in each other. And so it describes it, it describes how we learned it and it describes how we can do it better. Mm, you know, <laughs> We have some real similar stories. I don't know if, if you have heard our our story, um, but our oldest daughter was not our biological daughter. It was, she was my wife's half-sister. They shared a mom, and, and their mom was, uh, she still has her, her addiction struggles the last time I'd heard. I don't, know, I don't know really where she's at in her life right now, but because of those struggles, her her daughter came to stay in our house for a good long time, and you know, several years. And she called me dad and she called my wife, mom, um, up until, up until we lost her to a nasty disease as well. And Arissa was more or less not a not legally adopted child. You know, she lived in my house. We bought her food and clothes and, and, and took care of all the things that parents take care of. And I think you're right. People do tend to compare things like that and they go, well, you know, it wasn't your real daughter, but at the same time, man, <laughs> I think you'd have a hard time convincing us of that. And I, I imagine that's probably something that's true in your own, in your own story as well. Absolutely. It, I mean, from, I mean, and there's so much guilt, whether it's a biological child or an adoptive child or not formally adopted child about, I mean, the normal parental guilt of we are here to keep our kiddos safe and the world is a messy place sometimes, but there's, there's a lot of loss from, from other people saying no, and then the hurry up and get over it. And aren't you better now? And then when you get better, you kind of get this, well, you're not supposed to be better. Isn't this supposed to like plague you forever? And aren't you supposed to be perpetually broken? And what do you think you're doing? Mm, Yeah. There's no winning. Yeah. And Hey, you have all these other kids. Can't you be thankful that you have all these other kids instead of just focusing on this one that you lost? That's right. I mean, you know, pick a kid you don't like and then say you can't have them anymore and then don't miss them because you're just going to, you know, get a new puppy. (laughs) that is a wonderful way to put it a wonderful way yeah it took it took a therapist of my own to realize that part of my struggle was the fact that as a dad my job is to protect my kids and I I was I was really I think upset with myself that I could not cure hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis and as it turns out they had to fly a team of specialists in to the St. Louis Children's Hospital out of uh, John Hopkins just to be able to diagnose the disease because it's so rare. I don't think I was supposed to be able to to take care of that one. I don't think you were. I don't think you were. It sure felt that way. It sure felt that way for us. So yeah, I totally understand what you're talking about on the grief part because that was super hard for us. I mean, we, we still deal with it. I'm, you know, in, in many ways, I'm certain that, that we may or may not um, really show a lot of times, but it's, it's still part of our story and part of our journey. So, um, you know, you've got like the, the full gamut of things in your life here, you know, um, you also happen to have your, your podcast. Um, what is it? Grief and, uh, no, what was the name of your podcast again? I think I wrote it in the wrong place. The complicated adults. That's what it is. I wrote that in the wrong place. Cause I'm smart like that. <laughs> the complicated adult. I know you said you just got started. You're still working on that. Um, 
if uh, I'll be happy to make sure we throw a link in the show notes because God only knows when someone is going to listen to this episode. And so when you hear it, go out and see if it's if it's really taken off yet, because I know you're just in the beginning stages right now, right? That's right. We're we're focusing. It's a lot of stories from the therapy room. And I mean, I'm a therapist and I share a lot of the same stories and experiences over and over from a lot of them are grief and trauma stories and skills. I mean, obviously hundred percent of confidentiality is protected, but the skills and, and some of the patterns in the stories are the same from day to day. And one of the reasons when I wanted to after in writing the book and then starting the podcast was a lot of people are, why didn't I know this already? Why couldn't I find this? Why didn't I hear this before? And I'm like, well, I could record it. And that way, when people are interested and wanting to listen to it, it's available. There you go. Well, and let's be real honest. For most of us, you know, who who went through a lot of this hard stuff 10, 15, even 20 years ago, it was not that findable. The, the information just wasn't out there yet at this point. No, it wasn't. And then we were just... I, I mean, we very much come from the generation of the, the bootstraps, pull it up, suck it up, rub some dirt on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and I don't think that's really helped our mental health in the big long run of, of generations. No, it has not. And then when you say that to your kids, I have a lot of boys in my house and that, they'll take that a little too literally and not come in <laughs> covered in dirt. And <laughs> I have one that keeps coming in and I, I think he's found out how to get under the front porch. And when he comes into the front door there, we have just like a little foyer area and it has this perpetual pile of dirt and dust that just, I'm pretty certain that's where he comes in and shakes off like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> he may be part mole just digging underground. I don't know. I don't know. We haven't lost him yet. So as long as he comes back, I don't fuss at him too much. Hey, you, you'll have secret paths out in the, out in the yard. You just have to watch where you walk. Otherwise you might step and go halfway to China. <laughs> hey, as long as he's finding buried treasure, we'll be okay. That's right. Uh, now you, you said you're also a worker with uh, children's protective services, right? I was before I went into clinical work, I spent about 10 years working with um, foster care and child protective services. That was my first step into, you know, outside of, of my upbringing family life and into the life of foster care. What took you into, into that job, especially for, for how, how long did you say you did that job? 10 years? I was in there for about 10 years. Yeah. Okay. I, I know a lot of caseworkers. We, we've been doing this in our area for almost a decade and a half now. And I think if I was to count them all, we probably had 6,000 different caseworkers come through. Yep. It is a high turnover job. How the heck did you survive for a decade in that? Um, Stubbornness is probably one of the most well-known traits I could share. Um, part of it is, is moving with some different teams and working a little bit differently. But a big part of it was stubbornness of, I got to do this better and I got to do this and I got to figure out this. And it's one of the very reasons why I burned out and, and went on to clinical work where I could not just juggle juggle the families and the kiddos I was trying to help, but try to help on the back end because I thought we could do better. And I imagine as a therapist, you have a lot more time to build relationships with these kids and, and really, really feel like you have more time to help a kid. Absolutely. And what I, I mean, I love helping kids. I'm actually opening up totally separately, a residential treatment center for post-adoption kids because, you know, I'm bored. I have, I have eight kids. Why would I not do anything else? 
but I have another partner that we're opening up a residential treatment center for post-adoptive kiddos so that we can focus on that. And I love helping kids, but what I have found is that as much as helping kids is great, so much of it is figuring out how to help their parents, whether it be their biological parents or their foster parents or their adoptive parents, because some of the stuff that kids struggle with is not going to be, I hate using the word fixable, but I'm going to say fixable in the time frame that we want it to be. And so some of it is how as a person caring for these kiddos, do you survive some, how do you survive their trauma? And so I do a lot of work with adults and parents of, because that can be really triggering for the adults. And it brings up a lot of our issues, especially when we have kids that are struggling and we go, I'm really failing at this parenting thing because my kid is doing this. And then we get frustrated and tense and crabby. And we are even less of the parent that we want to be. Amen. <laughs> yeah, because I, I can only imagine just speaking from personal experience here that a lot of the things that you see that these struggles that parents really struggle with have a lot to do with the fact that these kids come into this situation with their own traumas, their own struggles. And then and then these kids have got us here who have our own traumas and struggles from our own childhood that may have never even been addressed and dealt with. And we're kind of like mixing our buckets of trauma together and seeing what kind of witch's brew we can come up with to live in. Yeah. And I mean, even if, because I mean, in my work, when I, when we work on trauma and things like that, people think it doesn't count as trauma. If it's not some big old child abuse, sexual abuse, rape, war, and while those things all 100% count as trauma, it is so much more intricate than that. Um, when I One of the, the treatment methods I use is EMDR. And when they talked about the redefined trauma, that it is what changes our brain and what changes our body is so much more the little stuff. And so I redefine trauma for myself and my clients that I said, if it changes the way you, you see yourself or the way you see the world, it counts as a trauma. <laughs> Trauma is one of those buzzwords that's been really popular over the last, oh, I don't know, five to 10 years, maybe. But before that, you're right. People would only have attributed that to something like, you know, the, the big, the big traumas. Other than yeah. that, you just needed to, like you said, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get over it. Let's go. You just got to do it. It's time to go white knuckle this. And yeah, we didn't have a lot of space to do, to, to deal with that stuff. And I think as, as adults, something in that in our generation that we've seen that turn into is is a lot of people who think that, well, if you can't fix it, then I'm just going to fix it for you. And I'm going to make you all better because we think we can just bootstrap it through that. And I don't know about I don't have the clinical degree, so I can't say this with 100 percent certainty, according to what science says. But I'm thinking that's a whole lot of BS. You can't do that. Oh, it's a whole lot of BS. Ask my beautiful herd of children and they will tell you mom does not have it all figured out. And I'm sure there are times that I have, I have as probably most adoptive parents for one time or another have been called the worst mom ever. <laughs> and <laughs> no, I'm sorry, that, 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 that one resides in our house. We have the award for the worst mom ever <laughs> and the worst dad. So yeah. Yeah. It, we're, we're giving those turn out and it doesn't matter my clinical expertise, my social work expertise. I am still the mom that turns off the Wi-Fi and grounds them from their friend's house and tells them they have to shower and do their laundry and clean their room. And I just, I couldn't be doing it more wrong. sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> that is abuse. Don't you know? 
I have this really nifty app on my phone that controls the Wi-Fi from wherever I'm at. Amen. We have it too. <laughs> I can be 500 miles away on a, on the phone with a kid who's acting a fool. And all it takes is a push of a couple buttons and the attitude changes completely. It is the superpower, isn't it? To be able, yes. it is, it is the life and death force in our house. If I mean, we, my husband and I'll go out to dinner. We'll get the phone call that they're arguing over what to watch on TV. We turn off the Wi-Fi and the TV. Whew. Air out of their sails. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one who abuses my kids with Wi-Fi. No, it, it, it is the it is the it's, it's the uh, the twenty the two thousand generation of parenting. We aren't taking away your this and that and the other. We're taking away your Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty certain Wi-Fi is is part of what what allows kids to be able to live. So you know, we're taking away a basic need, and that's okay. I think that one's okay. That's so, right. Uh, you know. The, the, the last part that we haven't really, you've alluded to it a little bit, we haven't talked about it a whole lot, um, is that not only are, are you, do you have all these different titles in your life, but you, know, you manage to pull all that off with, with a couple kids in your house. I do. I have eight children. Currently, I only have six in my house, but I have eight kids. I have one off at college. And then I have one of my, um, my, my other biological son is, is he's decided he wanted to play only child. And so he's living in Colorado with his dad versus with our herd of children. So we have six kids in the house now since my oldest went off to college. Ah, okay. Yeah. Our, we, you know, we, we had our daughter that, that we lost and our oldest two sons have gone off to, uh, to go be grownups because they're 21 and 23 years old. And then, and then one of our other kids is staying with a biological aunt right now. So we're down to four kids in the house and you would never think in a million years that down to four kids would, would sound peaceful. Oh, I, I look forward to the down to four. My husband and I are looking forward to my, our next two, cause we're half teenagers. And then through sibling groups and adoption, we now have, I mean, my oldest is almost 19 but my youngest are five and six now with the with the sibling group adoption. So we were almost to the end of the gate and then we started over because, you know, we're dumb that way. But <laughs> when we think of our next two kids coming through my, my next, my, my oldest adoptive son is 16. And then my stepson and my adoptive daughter are both 15. And so we think in three years, we'll be down to three kids. And it just seems like, paradise vacation every day to be down to, to be in the, in the final steps of maybe down to three kids. Oh yeah. Hey, I'm going to warn you. I'm going to warn you. There's, there's a snare in that quite a few years back at 41 years old, my youngest kid was going to be graduating high school and we were going to be early empty nesters. We have money to spare and go travel and see the world, whatever we wanted to do. We didn't have to take care of kids. And then something happened along the way and I turned 41 about three and a half years ago. And, um, I'm just going to suggest <laughs> that I've got a lot longer to go than that. Cause right now the youngest one in our herd is, uh, six. He's about to turn seven actually next month. And okay. Okay. I'm thinking, all right, well, that's, that's another 11 years. I'll be 56 when, when he's ready to go to high school or leave high school and Okay, well, we won't be early empty nesters, but you know, by that point, we'll be able to start thinking about like retirement coming up. And right now, we have a little one staying with us, and her story's not written yet. But if it goes long term, like it kind of looks like it may. Now I'm staring down something more like, 
like 62. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the numbers my husband's pulling, which is why he said no more at our last ones. He's like, I'm going to be 70 before our house is, has less kids. So that's why we're not even going to be empty nesters. We're just going to have a smaller nest. That's our goal. We're, gonna, <laughs> we're, we're, we're shooting for the smaller nest. Okay. Well, I know why I do this stuff, right? I, 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 have, a, I have a purpose in life. I, you know, I was put here for a reason. I know why I do the crazy stuff that I do. I know why I'm staring down like retirement age may come before the last kid leaves the house. I, I, I understand why I'm in that place. Why do you do it? Oh, it, it came down to very much that purpose element. I never really walked through the life of foster care and adoption. Nobody in my family had ever done it. Any of that other stuff, it, it was a whole new world. And so when I went um, to work for the state, um, it was a whole nother window of a world and, and there were so many changes and it was so heartbreaking and to be able to watch and to, to see this, I mean, cause I was actually still in the thick of things as a caseworker when I adopted my oldest daughter and that caused a whole lot of red tape and burned and, you know, feathers up on end. Cause you're not supposed to do that. And I mentally, I, I was going Cause I also happened to be six months pregnant at the time, <laughs> which I'm sure made my sanity look even better that yes. this woman is in her early twenties. She has a two-year-old and she's six months pregnant. She has, she's off her rocker. She has lost it. Cause this kiddo, my, my oldest daughter, she, she, she was a handful. She was 10 and she'd been in 10 different placements by the time she came to us and and they said, she's, she's, she's lost it. And I said, no, this is something that needs to be done. And if nobody else is willing to do it, I can do this and I need to do this. And, and so we went on the foster care journey with my daughter. And, and after she was killed um, in a domestic violence situation with a teenage boyfriend, which is a whole nother yucky mess. Um, and we did some healing despite knowing that it would probably be easier to not get on the road again my husband and I, it's like, okay, my, something in my heart said, okay, you got to do a sibling group. Your life is quiet. Your life is peaceful. You're still going through all this grief stuff, but you can handle it. Let's, let's, let's try it again. And so we, we got foster care licensed. I was a clinician at the time. And so I didn't have any conflicts going on in that way. And, and we got on the roller coaster again. Hmm. Yeah. I can't even imagine, you know, when we lost our daughter, it was to a nasty disease. And that's one of those things nobody expects to happen. But it once it, it began, it was it was a nine month journey. We we knew things did not look good all the way through it. And at one point we were we were pretty certain which way we were headed. Um I, I can only imagine that when you step into something like that with a domestic abuse situation that you didn't have a whole lot of lead up to that. No, we did not. And I mean she was still young. She was 15. He was not quite 15. And so it was, it was super young and it was messy. And it really definitely, it was one of the hardest parts in getting back into foster care because before, when we went into, when, when my ex-husband and I had gone into to foster care, we thought our worst case scenarios we would have is, is we'd, you'd get a pregnant teenager or maybe some, some shoplifting charges. This was our funnel of this is as bad as it gets. 
is that you might get a pregnant teenager or some shoplifting charges. That was what we imagined was our worst case scenario. We had no idea that this could happen. And and again, it's not limited to foster care or adoption kids. Unfortunately, domestic violence is a problem in lots of ages all over the world, but we hadn't even imagined that would hit our radar. And it did. And, and you have to work through it. Yeah. Yeah. That one would be, that one I think would, um, would require a lot of work for me not to end up just the anger alone. Yeah. And I don't know about your husband, but as a man, as a dad, there's that protective piece that comes in. Right. And I'm just thinking out loud that that would lead me down a whole lot of angry, rageful type thought processes. And, uh, and for you, I, I can't even imagine what that's like for you. You know, how, how did you walk through that? How did you begin to heal your own self after, after you lost her? Cause that's important. It was, it was hard. And the anger was definitely there. My husband was, was angry and he very much did not want to meet with anybody and, or was afraid that, and, and my ex-husband was equally, the anger was intense because there was a process before because they didn't know who it was. And it was, it was a big, it was a yucky mess. Dateline mess. We even did a dateline and other things with it. It was a dateline mess. Um, and once it finally got to the point of the criminal process and they knew and they pursued it, I had expected, I had expected to be angry. And when we walked in and I saw him for the first time since the process, I was just so sad. And I think one of the things that I did in my process that was different because I am a, I'm a kid raised in the nineties, true crime junkie. My dad had, we, we did Saturday night cops, America's most wanted. We, that was my childhood. So, so it was true crime before true crime, what it is right now. And so I had to very intentionally go, I am not here to solve this. I am not going to try to solve this because emotionally it's just not, it's not going to happen. I'm going to be invested with the police and work with them but I have kids I need to take care of and I cannot get lost down that rabbit hole. And so I had to come to a sense of resolution because it was a couple of years before we even got to the arrest and the trial of the, I am not going to let my healing be contingent upon some arbitrary law enforcement court system. I was not, I mean, the phrase that I, that I use then and I use now is I wasn't willing to lose anything else. Mm-hmm. And so I, it was like, nope, I'm not, I'm not losing anything else. And so I did, I did a lot of internal work. I went to a therapist who, while is probably a great person, was a sh- not so great therapist for my situation. <laughs> Don't take a person who's just graduated with their master's degree and have them read out loud in therapy. It really pissed me off. I'm like, yes. this is not helpful. You're not getting this here. And so and so I quit. And then eventually a couple of years later, actually, after we had our three kids that, um, that we were fostering that we've since adopted come to live with us, it brought up so much more of my grief again, because our youngest had some attachment, significant attachment issues. And there was just so much pain because I still remember it. I was at the state fair. We'd taken all of our kids. It was a family tradition. We went every year and my youngest was just having 
meltdown in a public place like our kids do when there's too much and they're acting out and it's just big and you are just trying to hold it together. And this lovely gentleman um, who knew things weren't quite right and a, a foster adoptive parent himself that I, you know, just total stranger came up and he says, I know it's hard, but they're so worth it. And he showed me this picture of his adopted daughter that had grown up and, and the happy ever after. And in a theory that should have made me feel really good that, <laughs> that yes, there's these happy ever afters and I know they exist and I didn't say anything, but all that felt like to me was a sucker punch to the gut of that is not the end story of the last story I was a part of. And so all of my grief has had come up and it was just battling against my kiddos and the grief that they were going through. And so I went to, I talked to my kids therapist and I said, I need a therapist who's good with therapists. I don't need any BS. Read me this grief stages crap. I can do that. <laughs> and so I worked with a wonderful lady. She actually put me, did me help me with some hypnosis therapy. And I found out my meanings, my deeper roots of why was I having trouble letting go of this so that I could be a better parent to my kids and that their stuff was no longer creating the fire and gasoline dance that I didn't think still was under there. You know, when, when we first started looking at therapists, I'm just going to suggest that it took a couple tries to find the right guy for mm -hmm. us. And I, I honestly never expected that I would find a guy that would be the right person for my wife, because that's, that's not what she tends to connect with. And it was a friend of mine who, who I knew had been through some stuff. And I said, Hey, you know, here's what I'm looking for. Do you have any, he said, I've got the, the greatest guy in the world. Um, he said, he's kind of, kind of comes off strange at first, because if you remember back to the future, Marty McFly's dad, uh -huh. he reminds me of Marty McFly's dad, except he drops the F bomb once in a while. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's weird enough. I'll try. And, you know, finding someone, I ah, forget Dr. Tom is, I want to say he's in his 60s at this point, early 60s, and he's seen some life. He's had some of his own trauma. And and so when we went to talk with him, he was the guy we needed to talk to. It was mm -hmm. just so valuable. You know, this is a guy with a PhD and lots of life experience. And that was the guy we needed because once you've been through some, the bigger things, you know, through a child loss, yeah. you need somebody who's who's more than a couple years out of school. You know, yeah. because everybody's got to be a couple years out of school if they're going to be on that journey. They got to get through that. There's a lot of places where that's useful, but in the big stuff, sometimes you just not only have to find somebody who has what you what you need in terms of education and experience, but personality too. Absolutely. And so, yeah, that that's been huge on our journey. Huge, just finding that right that right therapist to talk to on a regular basis. Absolutely, because and and it is so different. And I tell my clients this that I work with in private practice, I said, if you, if we are not a fit, if we are not a match, that's okay. We don't need to pretend we don't need to fake it. This is not your doctor where you're going in for your average physical once a year. And they're just checking your blood. This is a person that you need to feel comfortable sharing your deepest, darkest soul. Otherwise it is a waste of your time as a client. And the therapist is not going to be able to help you. And, and I'll be honest as a therapist, it feels awful not being able to help somebody. It's not an enjoyable experience for a therapist either. 
And so I, I'm very direct and open with my clients and I'm a very direct, I'm, I mean, they say therapists make the worst patients, but when I've worked <laughs> before and I'm very direct to whether it's working or it's not. And I'm not gonna, I mean, I have too much life. I have too many things that are valuable and important to me. And that I have learned includes myself and, and I very much of an advocate of find who fits with you because therapy is a beautiful process when you find the right connection. And if you have not had a great process, the odds are you just haven't found the right connection. Yeah. Yeah. Because therapists are a whole different uh, breed of humans in and of themselves. I, I have a friend of mine who's married to a therapist and we have some interesting conversations because, you know, he, I, I met Vaughn through a, through a dad's group that I'm in and, and Vaughn's a great dude and he's married to a therapist. And as we talk through a lot of these different, different skill sets that guys are looking to gain, you know, just learning how to communicate better and create better relational connections and things like that. And I'm like, ah, dude, I'm just super curious. Like, what does that look like in your house? Because most of these guys, you know, they can go home and take some of the stuff home to their family, to their wife and, and use some of these skill sets and, and it's beneficial and helpful. But I know, I know that if your wife is any good at all as a therapist, she probably sees the mechanics of what's going on. And she's thinking, what are you trying to do? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's a whole different, whole different um, aspect. And I'm just curious as far as, you know, because you guys have been through so much together on your own and, you know, you live vicariously through a lot of trauma of patients, I'm certain, whether you, whether you try to do it or not, it's, it's part of your life experience. How's that, how's that affected your, your marriage and your, or your relationship with your, your husband and your kids as well? My husband is a very special guy. He is, he's pretty amazing. He and I connected. We've been together. We've been together 13 years. We've been married 12 years this year. And we are both fiercely independent and stubborn, which is a pro and a con. He in general hates the world of therapy. He hates therapists. He thinks we're all nuts. <laughs> he's, 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 he's the, and he's your your veteran, your PTSD veteran, because the services that came to him made him believe that therapists are all a waste because it didn't work for him because the ones that he saw were not a good fit for him. But as a couple, we are, we're very direct with each other <laughs> and it can be really helpful. And over the last 13 years, we just, we worked to figure it out and there are times when I, I take up a lot of space in a relationship. I don't, I know it's, it seems very shy and, and I, I'm sure I'm a super shy, quiet person, but I take up a lot of space in a relationship. And sometimes my, my sweet, I don't want to rock the boat husband says, all right, whatever you need, dear. And other times he's, he's just open. And so in doing that, we learn a lot about what we share with each other and what we need to have other resources to share. I'm a very big advocate, especially for therapist spouses, you got to have people other than your partner, because some of the stuff I hear would be upsetting and overwhelming to my husband. And I work in private practice now versus a community practice where I'd have coworkers and supervisors or supervisees. And so I am thankful that my two best girlfriends are from grad school. So they also happen to be therapists. And we have, we have our own version of group therapy of, all right, here's our non-identifiable stuff that I need to process and get out of my head. And, and so I, I definitely 
say that and advocate for that. You got to have your own support group. And my partner, my husband is absolutely one of them, but there's stuff that, that it just, I have to keep that separate, not because he's not a wonderful, amazing man, but because being on the therapist end of things, you hold space for a lot of people's dark places and not everybody is made up to hold space in that same way because you you just don't have to or you don't have enough space. And so you find the people that hold space. In my case, I'm blessed with other group, other friends who are therapists who know how to hold the space, but not hold on to the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, you use that an interesting phrase there because that's one of the things that we, when we first started this podcast journey, one of the things we said was we wanted to, to hold space for people to be able to share their stories in as non-judgmental of a place as they can with as much anonymity as they need, you know, because some people don't want you to know who they are. You know, some people had a terrible experience with a, with a foster family when they were a kid, maybe there was some sort of physical or sexual abuse and they don't want to foster a former foster family hearing them talk about it. And so, you know, they could be Veronica or they could be Susan. And we just, we hold that space to be able to come in and tell a story as anonymously or not as you need to, because, you know, that's, that's a valuable thing that I found is just being able to speak out your truth into this world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. People don't understand each other's trauma. And until you've taken the time to sit and listen without judging it, without arguing it and just sit and listen to someone tell how, how their life has been changed. It's it's a very lonely world if you can't share that experience with anyone else. Well, I mean, one of the things that I deeply believe and and I and I harp on is people are so much more comfortable being afraid than they are being sad. We have we're we're encouraged to be afraid and when we hear other people's trauma, it brings up our fear and all these other things and it just feels so much easier to be scared than to be sad. And unfortunately, if we stay scared, it really ruins our relationships. If I were to focus on all the fear of all the different things that could happen to my kids or my husband or myself, I don't know that I would make it. Absolutely. You know, I'm sitting here trying to process through, through that thought and being more comfortable being scared than sad, Mm -hmm. you know? As a man, and I'm just going to, you know, kind of talking about the masculine versus feminine energies here. I think when when you're in your masculine, masculine that, that is 100% true. I can deal with, with afraid because all I have to do is rouse my anger a bit when I'm afraid to feel like I have some power agency in the world. Yep. And you look at the amount of men in this world who who struggle with anger. Mm-hmm. You know, that's huge. I know that the dad's group I'm in, um, the guy who runs it, Larry Hagner, he has a patience course. And it's all about understanding how to deal with some of your own anger and have have patience with your family. And that has been one of his most popular courses is because people don't understand how to get through their own anger. Yeah. It, it just, it feels more comfortable. And, and women get angry too. Women do also have a tendency for women. It can show up a lot more like anxiety and depression and men can struggle from anxiety and depression as well. But there's so much of that that is just because we're avoiding feeling sad. 
because we're because feeling sad will I'll put it out there. Feeling sad sucks. Feeling sad is lonely and can be isolating and heartbreaking and we don't like it. And there is a huge fear that comes up with our sadness. Grief has fear. Fear is the stage that they didn't tell you was in those stages of grief. Fear is like layered on there, like that thick buttercream frosting. (laughs) And it tells you about all the things that you might lose or all of the things that might be coming next. And so of course, sadness feels overwhelming and intense and unavoidable. And then we're afraid about all these other times we're going to be sad. And we feel like it's not ever going to end, that this is a permanent state of being. When in truth, that's not the sadness, that's the fear. And so separating that fear and that sadness of what am I afraid of and what am I actually grieving? Because we get in this position. I know as a parent, I fall in that a lot of, am I grieving what is actually going on? What is actually making me sad right now? Or am I grieving all of the things in the future that I'm afraid are going to happen? And I wonder why I feel overwhelmed. When we get so upset that our kid, I mean, my, my darling, my youngest daughter, she's almost 13 and she hates to do the dishes. You would think I had asked her to do the worst, awful, (laughs) awful, kill her job in the world, hates to do the dishes. And in my less great mom mode, definitely not therapist mode, but in my less great mom mode, I start to catapult. Well, she doesn't do the dishes. She's never going to make it. She's not going to be productive. She's never going to get a job. She's never going to move out. And then she's going to be homeless. And then she's getting into this abusive relationship and blah, 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 blah. Kid just doesn't want to do the dishes. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think... I don't know how well planned out that whole thought was, but the way that you, you ended that, you know, that it's going to lead her into an abusive relationship. Yep. And that my, my stuff. Yep. Still shows up right back. Yeah. And I know that's something that, that Amanda and I deal with still to this day is, you know, once you've experienced child loss, like that fear continues to show up in places that you don't absolutely. And you don't even necessarily see it that way. Maybe not consciously, but it's there. It is constant. It is because you, it's one of those things when you go through grief, whether it be child loss, whether it be divorce, whether it be loss of, of a, of a close friend or something else like that, you have broken that bubble of naivety that it can't happen and that it can't happen to you because you know, very well, it can happen and it can happen to you. And it did happen to you. And so there's no magic, beautiful wand that says, well, you're only going to give it, be given so many struggles in life. Here's, here's your, your short stick. You've already gotten it. You can't get it again. <laughs> there's, there's no guarantee. There's no magic. All right. You've already struggled through something really painful. You've, you've you met your cap. No more life struggles for you. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. We are not the fortune tellers of saying, no bad, scary things will ever happen to us or happen to the people that we love again. And we can be scared, which is what a lot of people feel because it is very genuinely scary. Or we can go, well, it's a risk that I got to take. I don't like that one though. Most of us don't. (laughs) I don't like that one bit, you know, because what you're saying is 100% right. It's 100% right. And it's, 
you know, I guess once you've walked, walked that journey, it's easier to see it, I think, because we've walked that journey and to see why, how sometimes it comes back and shows itself time and again, and we're faced with the same struggle a million more times, even though it would never have been that way had you not been through that one experience. But you would probably have never had had those those responses that you do now, and they seem so much more so much more rational than they would have otherwise. Yeah, I wouldn't have the uh, my other five children if I hadn't have lost my daughter. Not that it makes me grateful for losing my daughter. I am grateful for my experiences since then. That doesn't ever have to make me grateful for losing my daughter. But I can see that that there are other things that have come into my life that might not have come into my life if I hadn't lost her. Yeah. 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 That's uh, one of the lessons I've learned is that I think our job is, is to take the pain we're handed and create something beautiful out of it. Mm-hmm. And what a job that is. It's, it's a, it's an important job, but a messy job. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you might start with a ginormous steaming pile of manure dumped into the middle of your life. And what am I ever going to do with all this? And I mean, you can use that manure to, to create a beautiful garden, you know, there's a lot of things you can do, but, yeah. but in the beginning stage, when it's smelly and yucky and gross and you're tired and you don't feel good and everybody else is telling you, it's okay. You can't do this. Just stop now. You're not going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you may have walked a few of the same roads, Veronica, as what Amanda and I have. So it's glad to know we're not the only ones who who have been um, a little insane on this journey and still continue to press on. That's right. You know, because honestly, the loss of our of our oldest daughter that happened as um, as our very first two foster kids. The very first placement we had was was with us at that time, and that's where we were. We were in the middle of that, and so who knows? Who knows how that would have gone otherwise? But. But we are where we're at. And, you know, we, we've talked a lot on the um, the foster parent side today and the things that, that we as foster parents deal with. And I'm just curious because, you know, I, I'm just going to assume you're probably lying a little bit like my like my wife does whenever she says, I have this amazing husband over here. And I'm like, no, baby, you got me. You got me. <laughs> 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 keeping, keeping that relationship healthy. What's been some of the some of the skill sets that has been that has been vital to you? just keeping a marriage that's healthy and strong and willing to deal with the hard stuff and still keep moving. We very much intentionally have to figure out how to have time as an adult couple. I mean, we've got a lot of kids and especially when you add young kids, even, even mouthy teenagers, there's plenty of things that we can do. And there are plenty of times when we would make mistakes and we would do we'd go out for an adult thing or an adult date night. And all we do is whine about the children. And (laughs) that was not really a bonding experience. It is really not the relationship building experience. And so we have to, and it is still a hundred percent work. It's good work. And there are definitely lots of benefits to it, but it's a, we're not talking about the kids. What's our other dreams. What are the things we do? What are the things we want to do for fun? What do we like about each other? and very intentionally practicing it. And there are times when we fall short. There are times when our relationship may not be at the top of its game because we are exhausted and we have been working with 
the real life of we both have to work. And so they're, you know, so we can pay and feed for the house and the children and the dogs and the, and the what have you, where there's not a lot left for each other. And in those times, our marriage gets a little rocky. And so we've been there and, and we very intentionally have to figure out, okay, what does that look like? And we do it where there's less time involved and we've learned out how to do it in times where there's little to no money involved, because when you get the kid that needs braces or when there's a gap or when you have to replace a water heater or any of those millions of things that come to where we do not have to sacrifice our relationship based on how much time we have or how much money we have, because there's always something else that's wanting our time and our money. Even if it's a, we lock ourselves downstairs in the basement and we will watch a movie on one of the various streaming devices that we've got. And that's our date night, you know, just the little tiny things to where we go, okay, we are a human. We're in this together. We're not just mom and dad and allowing us to set down that mom and dad have role. I mean, it was beautiful. I mean, we aren't close to family anymore, but when we were living close to family, it was a, it was a blessing to be able to have them, to have our kids go to grandma's house or have grandma come and we would sneak away and, and we don't get to do that as often as we used to, but having whatever those supports are in is huge because being a parent all the time is hard. Being a parent to a child who has been adopted or in foster care is exhausting because there is so much stuff that that sometimes you don't even know until you're further down the road. And so parenting is hard enough, but but I definitely say when we have have kids that we haven't been with along the way or who have even if we've been there from when they were babies, they have DNA and genes and there it is an adjustment. I, having a baby does not make that magically easier. I mean, my youngest were one and two when they came to live with me. That is not the same experience as having when my kids were that age. They're, it's not the same. It doesn't mean I don't love them because I absolutely am crazy about my kids, but they are not mini me's. Mm-hmm. They, they have their own experience. They have their own genes. They have their own way their body processes things. Their own generational traumas that tend to like to show up at your house. Very much so. They have stuff that you're like, and, and, and you're always going, okay, how much of this is age appropriate? And how much of this is from foster and adoption? And that's the other gap that we fall into as foster and adoptive parents, because we definitely don't want to feel like we're screwing it all up when these behaviors are exploding like the volcano. No, no, no. I, I couldn't be screwing it all up this big. And we get stuck in this debate of, well, is it because they're foster and they're adoptive kids? Or is it just because they're a kid? And sometimes being a kid is hard. And we do not always know the answer to that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes being a kid just is hard. And it's very difficult for us to uh, to understand that and remind that some, or remember that sometimes when, when you have a... Uh, an 11 year old kid who's just losing their ever loving mind and, and you haven't dealt with the preteen years yet. And you see this thing, and you're like, huh, what's mm-hmm. wrong with you child? 
Stop acting like a fool. You have a great life. What are you being upset about? You need to calm down. Because when you use that mentality, it always works, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It doesn't even work with adults. And we somehow believe that just telling someone to calm down will work with the child. Somehow we think that that's a magical phrase. I'm glad Amanda's not here because she would be staring holes into the side of my head right now. Because Lord knows I'd say something about just telling her to calm down. And, and you know, there would be some memory of back when I was a lot less mature, also a lot more stupid when I may have may have looked at a phrase like that. You know, just, you just need to calm down. And that, gentlemen, if you're listening, if you're not, if you're tuned out, listen close on this one. Telling a, your wife to calm down or girlfriend or any other female in your life for that matter is always the wrong answer. <laughs> It's not that they haven't thought about it. You are not introducing a new concept. I think they, I would say it's the women and their husbands and their children. It's not that they wouldn't like to. <laughs> that mm-hmm. it, you're, you're not giving, this isn't multiple choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so, yeah, that a lot of the struggles being, being a parent is hard in this, in this generation. You know, I'm a 90s kid myself, right? Like I grew mm-hmm. up on alternative and grunge and all that good stuff and, and so being being a, a parent in this generation is hard enough because you know, our parents obviously did not understand what it was like to be a teenager when we were that age. And, you know, in this world, I mean, my God, if you can keep up with the, the different social, I mean, social media as a, as, a, mm. as a construct was something we had to kind of figure out as, as the like second generation learners there figuring out as our kids were two, three steps ahead of us. And now we look at it and I'm like, I can't keep up with them. I know, you know, Snapchat is the last one that that I really know much about at all. And I can't figure out how to use that stupid thing. There's TikTok and, and we have a TikTok uh, account. If you look up, I think it's, I think we're foster care nation is the handle on there. I don't really remember. I try and figure this out. And I'm like, y'all have some weird stuff. I can barely keep up with it, let alone figure out how to keep them safe amongst all that. Yeah, that's, that's definitely scary. We are definitely more of the overprotective parents of you are not entitled to a cell phone unless you are responsible with it. I mean, even my, my beautiful 19 year old son at college, he has unlimited options, but he still has the tracking app. So I'm like, yes, you may be eight hours away from me, but if you're in an accident, I want to be able to find your car and I want to be able to do this. And, And when you are graduated from high school, we understand that you might make choices we may not agree with. And that you may do that before you graduate from high school, but we're very much a, this is, you're not going to benefit. You are not going to die if you do not have a Snapchat or if you do not have a TikTok channel, or if you're not allowed on Facebook or this and that and the other, yes, your friends may have it, but I promise you, you will make it. And if you want options to have other options, then you're going to make good choices. And the second that you don't, we're going to take that off again, because some of the choices that you make are going to have way bigger consequences than you ever imagined. And somehow or another, they can't always hear that. You know, I created yeah. a Snapchat account once because I don't know if you're familiar with Gary V. He's a big marketing guy. And he, and I, I saw something he'd put out about how, you know, you needed to be on Snapchat. Snapchat marketing is a new place to be. And so I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to try and see how I can figure this out. Now, number one, I never figured it out. Maybe I'm too old. Maybe I'm too dumb. Maybe I just can't be pushed into, you know, chasing down secret messages from random people and I can't keep <laughs> up with that. And so that's why it didn't really work for me. But I had a, 
I had our, our very first um, Snapchat account that I created years ago, a couple of years ago. It was right around the beginning of our podcast. And I forget the name that I'd use because don't worry, the handle's been deleted. The account's gone, so you won't find it. But it was it was something like um, foster care journey or something like that. And do you know it took me a full 24 hours of having that particular app on my phone before I started getting pictures of penises sent to me just randomly. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Whoa, hang on. Like random random pictures like that are not appropriate anywhere um, mm-hmm. to strangers. But you chose an account that has the word foster care in the title to send that to. People do the most stupid things because they think they're anonymous between apps and the Internet. And they're just cruel and dumb and and I just, I, I, again, it makes me feel super old <laughs> and, and, and I'm going to be 40. So I don't officially count that as old yet. Um, <laughs> but I'm just like, what are you thinking? And so I'm like, no, I do not have the time and the energy for this. We're not doing this. I mean, I have seven boys and I'm very open with that. Do I have seven boys? Yes. I'm thinking it's seven. <laughs> <laughs> I know the struggle. I have a lot of boys. And I am very clear. I've given them all the embarrassing conversation, the mom conversation. No girl wants to see a picture of your penis. Don't send it to them unless they have specifically requested it. Even then say no, because it means she's just going to show it to her friends and make fun of you. Do not ever take a picture there. It's not necessary. It will get you nowhere. I said, just, just don't, just don't. And on top of that, depending on your age and her age, it can also easily be called child pornography and put you at legal risk that you really don't want to have to go show that part of your body to your cellmate either. Yeah. I've, I've had that conversation too. I said, you do know that you are still a minor and all those other, yeah, the mom conversations that my parents didn't have to have with me because we didn't have camera phones. We didn't have cell phones because they were a billion dollars and you didn't have any of those options. And now it just, it's, it's ridiculous. And so people make, make silly choices just because they can, not because they should. (laughs) Yeah. That's a lesson I wish we could teach the kids a little bit earlier, but I think we got to wait until that, that frontal lobe fully develops before they start to actually hear that and understand it. That may be the whole reason why most of our wars are fought by 18 year old boys. (sighs) Because once you get to a certain age, you think, ah, I don't know if I, that's a long way away from home. That's I've eaten like, like MREs. They're not that good. I don't know that I want to go, go somewhere else and have people shooting at me. It just doesn't sound like a good, like the sort of thing I want to volunteer for. It sounds like a horrible idea, but I, I was there at a young age and you know, in my what around 20 years old. And yeah, the, the, most of the guys who join up for that stuff, we look back and we go, yeah, we were pretty stupid as just as a group. We were generally speaking, very, very stupid. We're, we're very, we're very clear. My, my 16 year olds in the ROTC and he's looking at a military life and we are very open. We're like, this is your life. This is your choice. There's some very honorable things about the military and things like that. Cause I have three branches of military and my family members, but we're also here are all the reasons why you shouldn't join the military. If you're doing it for college, go get a student loan, go do something else. This is not the route for college. Yeah. If, you wanna, if you're doing it for all these other things, we're like, here's what's really going on. This is what it's going to be like. And if you're okay with that, there are great benefits and skills and opportunities, but don't do it for the commercial you, yeah. because it's, it's not going to be the commercial for you. So find out 
what really fits for you and, and do something that, because, you know, we love our kids and we want them to be safe and we, we want them to, to have the best information and to make the best choice possible. Yeah. And I'm just going to throw a plug in here. If you, anybody has a kid who's staring, looking at the, going into the military, look at the air force, just look at the air force. I, I was in the army and for some time I was stationed in the army on an air force base. And I looked around and went, Holy crap. These guys got it made when the, when the air force, um, the airmen came to stay on army bases, they got paid extra money for separate rations because the army food was considered substandard. <laughs> yes the air force has the cool stuff and they have the cool toys and yeah go go to the air force thing if if you have to um i mean i love my marines out there um and you know i I always tease them a little bit and and ask them what their favorite flavor crayon is and that sort of because that's that's how we how we talk right the the army we we tease the air force and the marines and the navy and they they poke fun at us and but yeah, when I'm looking at that with my kids, my own son, he decided to join the army and I was like, dude, okay, if you're not going to listen to anything else I say, at least listen to this. When you go in and before you go in, when you're selecting that job, go do something that's that's going to serve you when you get out. And yeah. today he is an LPN and owes exactly $0 in student loans. And the prob- the what he has left on, on the, the education stuff, I think the, the cost for him to get his RN would be under $2,000. Yeah, which is ridiculously cheap for the money that they and right now in a, um, I don't know if we're in a COVID world or post COVID. I don't know exactly what we want to call this era of time, but but nursing, like those folks are getting paid bank. Yeah, they ha- it's a it's a heck of a career choice. He he stepped into the right one at the right time. So just just trying to get these kids through these, especially the kids that we have come through our home through the trauma stories. Because let's be real yeah. honest, it's. If you go off to the military, some of that stuff and and jobs in general can be this way. You're going to step into some places that are really hard. Yes, yes. Definitely, I would definitely say work out your trauma story before you join the military because they're going to push all your beautiful buttons. Yeah, that's that that's super important. Well, Veronica, I am so glad you came to talk to me today. And, um, and I love a lot of the advice you gave that that's going to be helpful for foster parents looking back across our own marriages and relationships. That's, that's some of the most beneficial things that nobody ever told us about when we started this, you know, it, it, maybe it's part of some of the training now, but it wasn't when we went through and we've had to struggle through a lot of that stuff in our own time in in our own difficult ways. So, um, any way that we can help foster parents, especially build those marriages, have better connections and then be better parents to biological foster or even just kinship um, family members that, that allows us to really treat the kids better, give them what they need and model a relationship that we can change a generations is, is just as amazingly helpful as we can be. So thank you so much for your advice and your story and your time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Okay. Foster care nation. Thank you for listening to Veronica's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at Jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Patreon account where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. Visit patreon.com slash fostercarenation.
The links to everything are in the show notes in your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled Studios. Studios.